Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. We could go on and on about the work that Edmund Husserl did during his time at Göttingen and in the years following at the University of Freiburg. We're skipping ahead a bit toward the end of Husserl's life in the early 1930s. As a Jew by ethnicity, he began to encounter more and more roadblocks to a productive scholarly life as a professor. As Stan mentioned in our previous episode, Husserl boldly spoke against the inhumanities he saw as a possible outcome of the increasing pressure on the Jewish people of Europe. After horrible racial laws went into effect in 1933, he gave this statement. The future alone will judge which was the true Germany in 1933 and who were the true Germans, those who subscribed to a more or less materialistic, mythical, racial prejudice of the day, or those Germans pure in heart and mind, heirs to the great Germans of the past whose tradition they revere and perpetuate. Hmm. He experienced increasing isolation and obstruction to his work. He was cut off from the use of libraries for a week until the public outcry became so great that he was reinstated on a temporary basis. It was during this time that he wrote and gave lectures in Prague and Vienna. Those would become the crisis of European sciences and transcendental phenomenology, a pivotal and extremely important work. In 1936, he lost his entitlement to teach. Though he was internationally esteemed, those in power did not want Husserl representing Germany as a, quote, non-Aryan. He was forbidden from leaving the country to speak at conferences, and upon not being allowed to chair the Descartes conference in Paris, Edmund said to a dear friend, you see, even my ashes won't be deemed worthy to rest in German soil. He was a fellow at the British Academy of Philosophers, as well as being a correspondent for philosophy groups all over Europe. You can imagine what a discouraging time this was for Edmund. Dallas Willard says it this way, certainly the times were against him. World events made his vision of a life embodying goodness and wisdom under the direction of reason and certifiable truth look like the delusional reveries of an insane person in a madhouse dreaming of a world never real and never realizable. Hmm. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah, just an incredible stress toward the end of his life. Mm -hmm. He and his wife were evicted from their home and moved to a more isolated location in Freiburg, where Husserl fell ill and died in the spring of 1938, having just turned 79. Malvin later noted that it was their Christian friends who continued in fellowship with them, even when it entailed great personal risk. It was these friends who wrote consistently and even visited in some cases where there were limits on the movement of ethnic Jews around the country. Even attending his funeral was an act of anti-Nazi protest, Mm. which only one Freiburg faculty member was brave enough to do. And if this were the end of the story, it would be a rather depressing one. Mm -hmm. Herbert Spiegelberg in his book, The Phenomenological Movement, says that at the end of Husserl's life, he came to the inevitable realization that no single lifetime could he hope to fulfill all this, his aspirations, himself. He realized how hard it was for him to find collaborators independent enough to live up to his own demand for autonomy, and yet faithful enough to follow him through all the twists and turns of his philosophic development. They were somewhere along the line thrown off on a tangent. 
And yet, to the very end, Husserl clung to the firm hope of having at last found the true disciple, able and willing to continue his work. Though there was no single heir apparent to be found, his impact was beyond his imaginings. Quoting again from Spiegelberg, Husserl was human in more than one sense of the term, but he was also a human with a unique devotion to a task much bigger than himself, one far beyond the range of the average individual. He left behind over 40,000 pages of writings and notes, 10,000 pages of transcription from assistants, thousands of books and notes from friends, brilliant threads of work that didn't get integrated specifically into his published works during his lifetime. So as we've looked from the beginning of Husserl's life now to the end of his life, what strikes me is that he was willing to do a work that was sort of against the times. It, it wasn't specifically addressing something in the cultural moment. And I wondered if you'd be willing to talk about why it's important to do work that doesn't just specifically address the cultural moment. Well, when I did my dissertation under Dallas Willard, he said, be very careful not to do your dissertation on something that is a current fad because Mm -hmm. it will be outdated in 20 years. You want to work on an issue that's perennial, that's ongoing and and will always be with us, though you might want to work on a contemporary manifestation of that problem, of course. But uh, you want to try to tie your work to an ultimate issue that's uh, that's going to be around after you're gone. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that not focusing too much on the issues of our time uh, do two things for us. I think the first thing it does for us is it gives us a little bit of distance from those issues so that we're not overwhelmed by their presence in our thinking. Uh, if you're too deeply engaged in, in a, you know, the, the social justice movement or whatever it might be, it's easy to get lost in the details of what's happening. And you never step back and ask, what is it about in the first place? So I think the first thing that it, it does is it gives you a, a little bit of a distance from this. That's why reading old books can be helpful. Uh, and the second thing is that you you help yourself to the developed wisdom of the ages. Uh, and if you're not careful and you just focus on something that's going on right now, you're liable to think that that philosophy and academic discourse was invented 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And but but the truth is that there have been very profound thinkers whose thought is very relevant to what's going on, but they see it from a different perspective because they're not part of our era. So I think that's why it is important to try to read some of the great people. And for us as Christians, to to not just accept without questioning uh, the assumptions of our day that, that science has proven such and such, so that's the end of it, you know. Well, I, we ought to push back a little bit. So wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not so sure about that. I, I wonder if there's another way of looking at this. Let me do some work and find it. Hmm. So I think that's a, an important thing for all of us. That is really helpful insight, JP. Uh, yeah, JP, you remind me of the the way C.S. Lewis put it in his article that deals with chronological snobbery. He talked about the importance of reading old books not because they get everything right and we get everything wrong, 
they get, they have their own errors and issues and problems, but we can spot them, but they aren't making our errors. And so they're able to point out through their writings, the things that we just take to be given because our culture takes it to be given and we tend not to question it. But by reading old books, people from other generations, other eras, uh, we become aware of these things that ought to be critiqued and aren't just the way things have always been or understood to be. Uh, I was actually just reading, uh, you know, JP, you've been encouraged me to to do some work on this issue of neurotheology. So I was just reading uh, in some of these folks and, and interestingly, a number of these Christian brothers who are writing in the field to address issues of the soul through neuro neurobiology are really just reading people in the last 30, 50 years and aren't really in touch with the broader conversation that goes back actually to Aristotle and Plato. Yes. And so some of the things that they say are just so out of touch with the history of thought and the ideas that have really been wrestled with for centuries in some cases. Uh, But if you only read the last 30 to 50 years of people, uh, you don't get that rich history of conversation around the issue of what are we, what is the soul? How's the brain and mind related? All of these these issues. So it's just a, an example of where, yeah, you isolate yourself to a whole range of other views and ideas, some of which often are a lot better thought out than the ones we have these days. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they've stood the test of time. Right. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. they have. Exactly. Hmm. And I, I think there's some good news here, uh, Jordan and Stan, because I would say for the last oh, at least 30 years or, or, or a bit longer, there has just been a, a, a widespread grassroots, but also elite movement in, in evangelical Christianity to re-engage the world of apologetics and worldview and philosophy and ethical topics and so on. And uh, by now, there is a rich body of literature that's being published by evangelical publishers and others, don't don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. that are trying to make all of this available to uh, their audience. And so we have riches at our disposal. And so I want to say to those who are, who are listening in here to, to please be sure that you're reading and take advantage of this blossoming explosion of good Christian books in these areas of philosophy and so on. And they they actually will introduce you to independent thinking about subjects or some of this great tradition through history because they're familiar with it. So we're we, we're fortunate. Let's not let's not neglect this. Let's be sure mm-hmm. that we're we're reading some of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well said. Yeah, that's a great word, JP. We've talked in previous episodes about how Christians were often the ones who preserved the writings, even of non-Christians, in order to pass them down through history because they thought ideas were important, even if they weren't ideas that were perfectly congruent with our worldview. Yes. And boy, do I have a story for you. (laughs) One of the things that they did in Nazi Germany that was just so devastating was not only to snuff out the lives of Jewish people, which... It was also to attempt to snuff out everything that was a part of their culture. So any intellectual work that Jews did was very suspect, and that would include the work of Edmund Husserl. So Malvin Husserl is in this house in Freiburg 
with what basically was the life work or the knock loss of Dr. Husserl. Time was running out. There was a man named Hermann von Breda. He was a Franciscan monk and philosopher. He was only 27, and he was going on a train to Freiburg to study the work of Husserl. And when he got there in August of 1938, he met Malvin and the discussion began about how to preserve Husserl's writings and legacy. They both knew that it was a difficult and serious task. Two weeks later, amid increasing hostility and fear, Father von Breda worked to talk to the Franciscans and say, maybe we can house these documents here, maybe in this monastery. And they said, I don't know if we're willing to take on that kind of risk. So another friend, a Benedictine nun, proposed that the necklace be moved to a small monastery near the German and Swiss border, hoping to get it across the Swiss border where it would be safe. The three took suitcases filled with the works and upon arrival realized that the border security was much higher there than anticipated. After attempting to contact those who had been friendly towards Husserl's work before the war and finding they were in support of Hitler, the Swiss route became no longer an option. So Father Breda had the idea to bring the suitcases to Frankfurt to the Belgian consulate to place the papers in diplomatic envelopes so that they could cross the border without being inspected. It's important to note here that these works were often written in a shorthand that was very difficult to decipher, even for Husserl's assistance. So they could very easily have been mistaken for secret codes, messages, other such things. And of course, they would have been referencing Husserl's work and very easily traced back to him. So they got there only to discover that the embassies had different privileges than the consulates and the diplomatic envelopes were only to be used for things owned by a person uh, from the country carrying them. So Father von Breda would have been the only one who could own these documents. Malvin signed over a document saying that everything belonged to Father von Breda. However, he also signed a document that said when the Nachlass got to Belgium, it belonged once more to Malvin. So Father Breda retrieved the three suitcases from a Benedictine monastery where they had been and brought them by train to Berlin, the very heart of Nazi territory. So if you can just imagine, he was a foreigner, a Franciscan monk, and the danger he brought upon himself in doing such an act just cannot be underestimated. And he made it. The Belgian embassy agreed about the importance of the documents and decided they would keep them safe in their building, but they could only be placed in a diplomatic pouch with the approval of the Belgian foreign minister in Brussels. So off to Brussels, von Breda went. He stopped in Freiburg to pick up more papers, many transcribed by Edith Stein, and hid them in his personal luggage. He made it past the German border patrol, and the first victory of the effort to save Husserl's knock loss was accomplished. He got the approval of the Belgian Minister of Foreign Affairs to use the diplomatic pouches and help with other parts of Husserl's work that were located in Prague. So then all the materials safely arrived in Brussels. And in 1938, the Husserl Archives was founded at the University of Leuven. Father von Breda, with help from others, had managed to transport this enormously important collection to Belgium. But, of course, Belgium was not to be excluded from Nazi tyranny. In 1940, Germany invaded Belgium. And on May 17, 1940, the library that had been keeping the Husserl Nachlass was reduced to ashes. 
in a great act of providence, Father Breda had moved Husserl's works to the Higher Institute of Philosophy only one week before. Mm-hmm. And in a clever move, Father Breda distributed the works of Husserl and a few other Jewish scholars to many different locations in order to improve the chances of at least some of the valuable work surviving. University cellars, abbeys, and other places were the locations he chose. Miraculously, every page survived and was reunited to one collection after the war. Father von Breda was honored for his incredible efforts to preserve the life and works of many Jewish scholars in many different ways. In 1935, when Husserl had in public lectures in Vienna and Prague warned against narrow positivistic understandings of science and culture, leading to value relativism, biological racism, and nationalism, he urged Europe to dare a radical renewal. In this spirit, von Breda submitted to the UNESCO, that is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, an application in 1949 with the letters of 40 leading intellectuals presenting Husserl's philosophical legacy as a contribution to the renewal of a universal world culture after the atrocities of World War II. Hmm. The dossier's success permitted the posthumous publication of Husserl's major work, The Crisis, and put phenomenology at the center of post-war intellectual life. There is a really excellent book that goes into more detail about this. This is one of those, like, who knew philosophy could be so page-turning? <laughs> by Toon Horston, The Father and the Philosopher, Saving the Husserl Archives. Hmm. So some of these great old books have come to us at great cost by the people who saw them as vitally important to preserving the legacy of people who had done extraordinary work. And it it makes me wonder, how can we steward the legacy of faithful people who went before us in a way that honors God, like Father Von Breda did? Well, that's quite a story. And the next time you hear a Christian leader stand up and say, you know, we don't, we don't need to analyze our faith. Uh, we need to be ordinary people in love with Jesus and that's that's what this is really all about is personal relationship. Let this story remind mm. you that that kind of a statement is just dismissive of all the, the sacrificial labor that our brothers and sisters down through the centuries ha- have engaged in precisely because they valued the life of ideas. They, they've, mm. they realized ideas change the world. And uh, this story is a classic indication of to what extent people will go if they think there are ideas that are absolutely crucial for the future of the human race uh, to preserve those ideas. And in Husserl's case, he was a he was a regular critic of logical positivism or or scientific empiricism, which is basically the idea. I'm going to I'm going to sim- really simplify it but it's the idea that if you can't test a claim with sense experience then it's it's just meaningless doesn't mean anything and so the statements like love is a virtue or it's wrong to torture your babies for the fun of it or that god is love or whatever it might be uh are are absolutely meaningless and it was positivism that led to 
the German people being willing to place a make the, the makeup man over the speechwriter. In other words, it was a they were open to a powerful public orator, and they weren't as attuned to ideas precisely because the ideas that were at stake here in the rise of uh, uh, Nazism were not scientifically testable ideas, uh, and the people through the school system had not had not learned to think in those terms. But Husserl developed a whole new philosophy drawing from Aristotle and some of the past that was was a distinctively philosophical way of gaining knowledge of reality that had very little to do with science. And it was dangerous precisely for those who wanted a scientific world and to, to, to kill the God question. And that's why it is important uh, to, to realize that we are a people who have always valued ideas and human beings by their very nature, as Aristotle said, long to know, and 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 they they care to know about important truths. So, this is a real—I don't know, uh, Stan, how you're what you're feeling, but this is a real testimony to me, once again, of 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 the stunning sacrifice people are willing to go to, to 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 preserve a set of ideas and propagate them to for the good of the kingdom of God and and of humanity in general. Yes, uh, I obviously so agree, but I, I think of the passage in Hebrews that tells us that since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we too should continue to run the race with perseverance. And we think of that sometimes in just very narrow terms, but I think you're speaking to this in the broader context of God has called men and women throughout history, like Husserl, to think well about reality and uh, summarize those thoughts for the rest of us as they run their leg of the race. Yes. And it's incumbent upon us to see them as the cloud of witnesses we now are running the next leg of the race after and to to build on that, not to discard that, not to say that's not important, not to devalue the work that's been done to understand what's true, what's good, and what's beautiful by our brothers and sisters before us and others who aren't believers as well, but especially brothers and sisters like Husserl who have gone before us and have left us this legacy to continue. And the issues that we face, though they're different in some very important ways, they're very similar to the issues he faced in his time. And so his work is even more so the type of thing that we can take from him as the baton is passed and apply to our modern milieu that continues to want to reduce all reality to what we can see and in some way empirically verify. And if again, just like in the height of Nazism today, that leads to the same problems with devaluing the reality of moral values, the reality of souls, the reality of God, anything that's immaterial and ultimately it seems really important is just no longer of any interest because it can't be weighed and put into a test tube and boiled or in any other way verified in some scientific experiment. So again, it's just, I think, incumbent upon us to be faithful to that passage in Hebrews and take the baton from those and don't denigrate or ignore the contribution they've made, but find ways that that then can help us live well and serve others well in our current environment. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. 
Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to thinking Christianly. Our current environment is so prone to indiscriminate idol-making and idol-breaking and really a, a kind of cancel culture. And in saying that, you know, when Father Von Brito was saving these things, he was not saying, I agree with everything Husserl ever did and ever said, and he was perfect. And we need to hold him up as this singular, you know, idol of perfection. Sure. He was saying, these ideas are important. I think they need to continue. I think people need to test them and there should be more study in reading old books or in exploring these previous writers. We're not putting a stamp of Christian approval on everything they ever did or wrote. We're saying that there are ideas in here that are worth investigating. Yes. Let me let me give you an example of yeah, that. Yeah, There's a series that came out uh, with InterVarsity Press a number of years ago that I have benefited a great deal from. It's the Ancient Christian Commentary series. And what they did was they took the uh, the early church leaders' commentaries on Scripture from the second to fourth centuries, I believe, and they compiled them into commentaries on First John and on Romans and on what have you. And it was the first attempt that I know to take some of those writings and bring them into the modern conversation of exegesis of biblical passages. You know, we've got so many commentaries out, but again, most of them have been written within the past 50 to 100, maybe 200, 300 years. But it devalued so much the work that had been done by our brothers and sisters in the first several centuries of the church to try to engage the scriptures and understand what was being taught through them. And uh, and I've benefited a great deal from that uh, in the, the, the times that I've had to wrestle with passages and not just myself be confined to the past couple hundred years of interpretive conversations on those passages. It's enriched my my understanding and spiritual life a great deal. Amen. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I wanted to add to that uh, your point, Jordan, about passing down the body of thought and ideas to subsequent generations. Our listeners need to realize that uh, a lot of us are getting old, and so many of the thought leaders, like Stan uh, and G- Greg Kokel at Stan to Reason, these are highly educated, intelligent thought leaders of, of significant ministries in the evangelical community. 
And so many of our thought leaders are are going to be dying, you know, in the next 10 or 15 years. Or, and, you know, Stan's not getting any younger. Can we go with 20 to 30? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I might, I'll stretch it as best I can. Just going to lobby for maybe yeah. 25. How about I don't think, I don't think I want to lobby for 25. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to be ready. <laughs> But but it's 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 not like we're going to be around forever, and so it, it, this younger generation they're going to have to step up and and take the mantle, and there needs to be preparation for that. And so uh, this whole point about us role is very relevant to people that are going to be next in line. Mm-hmm. And there's no time like today to be to double down on your focus in, in studying and being prepared to be spokespersons. Uh, for our for our brothers and sisters, it, the challenges that they're going to meet in twenty to twenty five years, as Stan put it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I'm going to take this advantage for a little commercial. I know JP, this isn't why you mentioned that, but I'm going to oh. take the low hanging fruit right here. Um, <laughs> Go for it. So, and it's very autobiographical. I found myself about maybe thirty years ago in ministry almost a decade and really hitting some things that I just wasn't prepared to engage in terms of the cultural conversation. And so uh decided I needed more training, but I didn't need the type of training I would get from a traditional seminary master of divinity degree. So I wasn't called to a pastorate. Now, if somebody is called to a pastoral role. That's exactly what they need. That wasn't what I was called to. I was called more to broadly, more broadly engage the, the culture outside of the church, uh, as you were just referring to, JP, and more apologetic and cultural analysis and responses. And so uh, I made one of the best decisions I've ever made and packed my my family up uh, with my wife's blessing. And we moved little, literally across the country to LA to to do the, the MA philosophy there at Talbot with UJP. Uh, but the good news is that there now are more and more of these really solid programs. I mean, I think Talbot still stands above the others, but the others have been spawned by some of your students, JP, yes. around the country who started yes. MA philosophy or MA apologetics programs at at very respectable yes, institutions you bet. such that almost anywhere you live you can within striking distance be in one of those universities and one of those graduate schools one of those seminaries or the other good news here is with the digital age coming more and more into focus there are many of these programs that either in part or in some cases in whole can be done online so uh, there's just an opportunity for the, the the younger generation to have access to this caliber of teaching so they can be prepared to take that mantle, just as you're saying. Good, good word. Very good word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking from that generation, I think we're, we're looking around at the passing of great figures like Timothy Keller and, and others mm. who have inspired us so much in thinking, Oh boy, who's next? <laughs> kind of, kind of yeah. looking up and looking around and thinking, "Oh man, what what are we going to do?" And I think maybe that is the role of every generation to look around and say, yes. "Who among us? Who among us do we feel is worthy of this mantle and worthy of our attention?" We need to be critical and careful thinkers about that. Who we listen to and what we listen to about these topics because they are so fraught. They're very challenging. Mm -hmm. And that's where the wisdom from the generation above us is just invaluable. 
It's yes. just so priceless that we can't, we can't lose it. And so to keep those things and, and pass them kind of embody them ourselves and then hopefully pass them down to the next generation and, and remember what it felt like to look around and go, Oh no, <laughs> where is this ship going? Who's going to take the wheel? Yes. Uh, I think that's a part of how the Lord raises people in the church, raises people in the culture to bring about his glory and his ends. It reminds me a little bit of the analogy of the person who starts a cathedral. The people who set the cornerstones are historically very rarely, if ever, got to see it finished. Mm -hmm. So what they had to do was to do the best they could to lay the best possible footing and hope and pray that the next generation of workers could come and make something beautiful. And so, you know, all over Europe in particular, but in other parts of the world as well, we see these gorgeous cathedrals that were built by not one generation or, you know, we, these days we, you know, put up a church in maybe a year, sometimes too, if we are doing a little extra woodwork on it, but we just don't have the imagination for what it would be to have a project that extends beyond our lifetime. I wonder, I wonder what you think about that idea. And if you've seen in your life or in the lives of others, people who have handed something to you that extended beyond their own ability to complete. Well, I think you're, you're your finger on a very deep problem that we're facing in this century. And in my view, it very simply went like this. Uh, once these important truths were not available to us to, to know which ones were true because they couldn't be verified scientifically, then then the, the, the search for what we might call true and time-tested wisdom couldn't be done because you couldn't test empirically whose wisdom and what, what wasn't wisdom. So the search for truth was replaced with the satisfaction of desire. Uh, and so now living in such a way that the desires I have get satisfied is pretty much the, the point of life. Uh, it's kind of eat, drink, and be merry. But along with that, Jordan, came uh, a qualification, and that is that people are wanting to pursue the instant satisfaction of desire. They don't want to delay gratification. Mm. Uh, they they want to have it as now as much as they can. And so people have slowly lost the art of living in such a way that you are seeking long-term lifetime objectives. And even those that might carry on into other centuries where you are laying the foundation for the cathedral to get uh, to be advanced in later generations. That's just a thought that, that, that it's hard for people to have, given that their aim is not thinking that way. It's, it's wanting to have kind of the instant gratification of what they're feeling. So it's very hard to convince people of this perspective you're suggesting. Whereas for people in the medieval period, it, it, it would just fit in very nicely with the way they saw reality, uh, that God is always going to be here. And my my period is to contribute by and large to him. I want to go to heaven, whatever it might be. And 
that was more conducive for that kind of thing. We've got to we have to sell people on it today, I think. And and that's a problem. Mm. Yeah. In addition to that, there's this increasing celebrity culture that is mm. all pervasive. And the problem with that is that uh, the person who lays the cornerstone is not the celebrity mm -hmm. and exacerbated by social media today. It seems to be all about getting noticed and being the man or the woman and uh, having the accolades. And that doesn't fit well with building for the, the long haul and seeing your role as very much unseen at times so that others can build upon what you've done. And they may be the one who actually get that glory, get that celebrity, get that honor, which is fine if that's the, what the Lord has. But, but, but we all want to, and are trained, I think in our culture to assume that we ought to be, uh, if, if we're successful getting those accolades and getting that celebrity, uh, you know, of course we see it in the church, we see it in the university. We see it in the business context. We see it in our in our in communities. It's it, it's so pervasive. So I, I think that's equally challenging to this long haul vision to actually work at something that's meaningful and valuable, even if it isn't going to have immediate ramifications or results. That's just such an insightful word, and the role of humility there in our our posture toward our work and humility and mm -hmm. you know i i am completing something or you know maybe i get to run the the last leg and maybe i get to stand up on the podium and and do the the thing where the spotlights are on which that might be what god is calling some of our listeners to but for the most part like we're running the other legs mhm mm mhm mm and accepting that is actually a really freeing thing to do. Yes, it is. It's just a a weight off our shoulders in so many ways because we don't have to we don't have to take it across the finish line. We right. we can trust that God is faithful and that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Yep. And we don't need to hold it hold it all up on our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, there's so many times I think God just gives us the blessing of, of getting peeks into what he's doing through our labors. Uh, although 99% of the time we don't see it. I was just uh, in, at a meeting and a gentleman came up to me. I had a 30 second conversation with 20 years ago and he mentioned something that we had talked about that went on to help him in certain very important ways. Mm. Uh, and I know there are people that have influenced me in that way from even throwaway comments, offhand comments that they didn't think much of. And it was very important in my life at that stage. And, uh, and uh, JP, I know you've got so many examples yes. of that yourself mm -hmm. and, he, and even, uh, you know, your, your vision to, to found the program at Talbot, uh, you know, started with a, with a lot of spade work and, a, and, a, and, you know, a lot of, yes. I mean, you might want to even mention that story because I think it's such a good example of you were just being faithful to a, to a, to an idea you had That's right. without any sense of what it's going to be, but it just needs to happen. And it's, it's mm. your leg of the journey to see about getting something like this off the ground. Yeah, that's right. Just, uh, God impressed upon me the need for something like this. And when I moved to Southern California, uh, Scott Ray, my colleague, and I sat down in a McDonald's with a napkin. <laughs> 
and we just sketched out a curriculum of what courses should should be taught in this. And lo and behold, we started this thing and got it approved, and uh, it launched. And now others are 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 starting their own, and uh, and it will continue long after I'm gone. And I just mm-hmm. uh, I agree, it was just one of those things that we just were trying to be faithful and bloom where we were planted. And we had an idea that hadn't been done, and we thought we'd try it. Why? Why not try it? I mean, if we if we fail, so we we give it our best shot. Sure. Uh, and it was an adventure, and it turned out that God ble- actually blessed it. So, you never know, do you? Uh, you may not be a husserl, uh, but but you can be you, mm-hmm. and and do what you can because we all have different roles to play. Exactly. That's true of so many of the things you've written too, right? I mean, they were. Things that you thought somebody needs to somebody needs to address this. Not sure yes. if this is getting, uh, probably never thought this will be a bestseller. But no. if, if a few people read this who need to understand this, it's it's worth worth working on. That's worth right. writing. That's right? right. That's right. Yep. That's exactly right. I think that is just a great a great time to uh, to close us off here. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Really appreciate this time. Great being with both of you. So good to have the conversation. Appreciate it, Jordan. Mm -hmm. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.